Okay, I want to finish our time before just our Q&A this afternoon on just practicing forgiveness. And uh, I think this is relevant because you get to this point in a weekend like this where we're talking about one anothering ministry um, uh, and, and coming alongside one another, engaging in conflict. And certainly by now, you've, you've been mulling over some of your shortcomings and sins and failings that you're seeing in your relationships uh, in your life. And so the, the question is, is there hope when we fail? And the answer is yes. And it's this wonderful gift that we have been given in the gospel to embody the gospel of grace by showing forgiveness and practicing forgiveness in the same way that we have experienced and been shown forgiveness in Christ. Um, I will tell you that I think this is one of the least practiced virtues in Christian marriages and Christian homes and churches. We do not practice forgiveness. We think we do, but we don't. Uh, I grew up in a a very uh, loving home, had great parents. My mom and dad are still alive. They They didn't have a clue. They didn't know what this looked like. Um, years into my marriage, as Barbara and I uh, grew in our relationship with one another, and then as we had children, just this practical practice of forgiveness, we were, we were you know, lagging behind. And so as I began to teach and preach on forgiveness and began to learn, I, I realized how utterly necessary this, uh, this topic was for us as Christians to grapple with. So uh, I hope that... Uh, the time that we spend focusing on forgiveness will be, uh, will be helpful for you today. There is hope when you fail in a relationship. There is hope when someone else fails you in a relationship, as much as it depends upon you. Um, let, me, let me start by saying this, that the practicing of forgiveness is not something that you simply reserve on a yearly or every two or three year basis for those mammoth, colossal, you know, infringements or sins that have been committed against you or sins that you commit against someone else. This practice of forgiveness is actually a daily practice. Again, I've told you, I'm married, I have four kids. There There are ample opportunities within any given week. And two of my kids are not in the home now. I've only got two in my home and there's still ample opportunities for practicing forgiveness throughout any given week. And I think uh, C.S. Lewis captures this uh, rather well when he says this. Listen, to forgive the incessant provocations of daily life. You live there? Incessant provocations. It's not just the big stuff. It's the little thing. It's the, it's the sarcastic quip. It's the, it's the passive movement away from you or someone that you move away from, these incessant provocations of daily life, to keep on forgiving the bossy mother-in-law. And I'll put in their father-in-law, right? Let's not pick on mothers-in-law. The bullying husband, the nagging wife, the selfish daughter, the deceitful son. How can we do it? Only, I think, by remembering where we stand, by meaning our words when we say our prayers each night, Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those that trespass against us. We are offered forgiveness on no other terms. To refuse it is to refuse God's mercy for ourselves. There is no hint of exceptions, and God means what he says. So Lewis is picking up on something of the warning in this passage. By the way, Matthew 18 and the the text that 
uh, Ryan just read, verses 21 through 35, is a parable with a deep warning in it. And I don't know what your experience was when you read it, but this always happens to me. I'm reading this parable, and I see, okay, here we have this wonderful king. He has a servant who owes him, most people say, anywhere between 15 to 20 years of debt. And this king forgives this servant. Then you have another servant, this fellow servant of this servant that's just been forgiven, owes this other servant probably about two months' wages. Now, now, this is not something that we ought to minimize. Two months' wages to another servant felt like 17 to 20 years' wages to this king. So it wasn't a small matter, but, but it, it certainly paled by comparison. But this, this servant that's just been forgiven that's a, this immense debt fails then to forgive this fellow servant of a lesser debt. And I, I read the parable and I think, what is wrong with this fellow servant who's just been forgiven this mammoth debt? What is wrong? And then I start to realize that I'm that fellow servant. I'm that servant that has been forgiven immensely and I am so cheap when it comes to expressing grace and mercy and forgiveness to those around me. This, this parable, as you read it, you know, Jesus has this wonderful way in these parables of sneaking up on you from behind and getting you. And that's what this parable does. You look at it and think, this is illogical. What's wrong with this person? And oh, no, that person's me. Right? Well, let's, let's look at this passage uh, in particular, and then I'll reference some other passages as we think about what forgiveness is and what forgiveness is not. And I, I just want to let you know up front, I have nine things that I want to say about forgiveness, okay? I'll stay within my time frame, right? This is not a three-point sermon times three. This isn't, you know, 90 minutes or more. But I do have nine things that I want to talk about, what forgiveness is and what it isn't. And then I just want to finish and talk about why we struggle so much to forgive and how God, by His grace, can enable us for, to forgive. So here, here is... Uh, the first point. First of all, what exactly is forgiveness? Number one, forgiveness is canceling a debt. You see that in verses 27 and 32. The king cancels the debt. The fellow servant refuses to cancel the debt. So, So forgiveness is being talked about here in terms of canceling a debt. Now, what happened in 2008 or 2009 when uh, all of this crazy debt was forgiven, you know, with all these wild things that the banks and the real estate uh, folks were doing, all of a sudden we found ourselves in a crisis. We forgave the debt, didn't we? But did that debt just evaporate? Did it just go away? No, somebody had to pay for it, right? Guess who paid for it? We did. Somebody had to pay for it. And, And so... You know, canceling a debt just doesn't mean it goes away. What happens when you forgive someone is you actually absorb the cost of their offense. And you say, I will not make you pay for what you've done to me. But it will cost you. That's exactly what the gospel of grace is. God doesn't just say your debt evaporates, voila, it's gone. He says, no, I will forgive you. But something's going to have to be done. Someone's going to have to pay, and that someone is me, and I'll send my son to absorb the cost of your sins, of your infractions, of your misdemeanors. And so forgiveness is canceling a debt, or 
A better way of saying it is absorbing the cost. I think that gets at the the experiential side of it. I'm going to absorb the cost. I'm not going to make you pay. Let me give you three practical ways that, that you do that. How do you absorb the cost? Number one, you make a promise that you won't use it against them. All right, I'm not saying that you can't bring it up. We'll talk about that later, but you don't use it against them. Secondly, you make a promise that you won't talk to others and, and malign their character. See, that's just another way of making them pay. And then thirdly, you make a promise that you won't dwell on it personally. You won't dwell on it personally and p- play that Blu-ray disc of what they did to you over and over again in your mind. You're absorbing the cost. I'm not going to make you pay. I'm not going to use it against you. I'm not going to use it to malign others and talk to others about you, about what you've done to me, and I'm not going to dwell on it personally. Forgiveness is absorbing the cost. Number two, a failure to forgive, of course, is just the opposite, right? It involves making the other person pay. And you see that in verses 28 and 30. What does the servant do? The servant does what? He goes and he chokes this fellow servant that owed him And he fails to cancel the debt or absorb the cost, and he throws him into prison. He says, no, I'm going to make you pay for what you owe me. What does it look like to make somebody pay? Well, you just break those three promises where you say, I'm not going to make you pay. I'm going to bring it up, and I'm going to use it against you constantly. I'm going to dwell on it. And and when you dwell on someone someone's sin that they've committed against you, you know what you're doing? You're actually turning that into a wish of ill will upon them. That's what happens. You're dwelling on it and dwelling on it, and you're thinking, I hope they get repaid for what they did. I may not do it, but I hope somebody else will do it for me. Um, and you break a promise to not talk to others about it. So you're, you're constantly telling other people about what this person did to you. You're making them pay in different types of ways by breaking those promises. Number three, forgiveness, and this is important, is an event and it's an ongoing process. And you see this in verses 21 and 22 at the very beginning of the parable where uh, Peter approaches Jesus. How many times should I forgive someone? And Jesus basically says, you are to be infinitely forgiving infinitely forgiving. There is this radical picture of forgiveness being placed before Peter and the rest of the disciples and you and me. And, and forgiveness is not just an event in the past, but it's an ongoing process, okay? So what happens? Someone sins against me, and I make a commitment then. I'm not going to make you pay. I will forgive you. That was on Wednesday. Now I see you at church on Sunday, four or five days later, and you're just sitting up in front of me, and I see you, and I start to remember what you did to me, and I start changing my mind, and I start thinking, you know what? I think I might make you pay after all. You see, you've got to continue forgiveness as a process. Yes, it's a commitment in the past. I will forgive you. I have forgiven you, but... Day in and day out, I'm not going to take that offense back up and start to make you pay. I'm going to continue as a process to forgive you infinitely. And that's, that's important to understand because some people, this is, this is what happens. 
they, they think they've forgiven someone in the past, but they've taken up the offense somewhere along the line after that initial act of forgiveness and commitment of forgiveness in the past. And 10 years later, they find themselves embittered. I've, I've, I've watched this happen constantly because they, they don't remember that this commitment in the past to forgive must be carried on into the present and into the future. I must continually commit myself as a process to forgive you. Number four, I told you I could move quickly. Aren't you encouraged already? And by the way, I've heard uh, professional communicators and, and people who tell people like us how to, to give speeches and talk, they say you should never tell people how many points you're going to give them because they're just sitting there watching their watches and counting off how many points you're, you're getting through. We're at number four, though. Number four. Listen to this. A failure to forgive turns victims into victimizers. Look what happens to the servant who's forgiven. He's forgiven, he fails to forgive, and what happens? He doesn't remain neutral. If you fail to forgive, you become a victimizer. You have been victimized, you have been sinned against, you are a victim. And there's a biblical category for that, being sinned against. But if you do not forgive... You become, you turn into a victimizer. You change, you become bitter, you become angry, you find ways to seek revenge, you wish ill will on someone. If you don't forgive someone, it will change you. Another thing, number five, forgiveness, and listen to this. Now, in light of all that, forgiveness is not peace at all costs, all right? This, this passage is teaching within its context a radical understanding of practicing forgiveness. And we of all people, given the forgiveness that we've received in Christ, should be the most forgiving of all people. But the Bible nowhere tells you to make it easy for people to sin against you. It never says, open yourself up to abuse. And it never says, remain in an abusive relationship and don't do anything about it. The Bible is much more sophisticated and nuanced than that. But notice forgiveness is not peace at all costs. Look up at verse 15. It's within the same context of this parable teaching on the nature of radical forgiveness, practicing radical forgiveness. What does it say? Verse 15 of chapter 18. If your brother sins against you, just ignore it. Don't do anything about it. Sweep it under the rug. Let him do it again. No big deal. That's not what the passage is. If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault. There is a process. And then it says, and if, if he isn't won over, if indeed he has sinned against you, if he hasn't been won over, and if he doesn't repent, if he refuses to listen, then you have another step. So there's this process of church discipline, and that's a whole other subject. All right, and this is just one place in Scripture where we're given wisdom for dealing with people who sin against us repeatedly, the abuser, the, the irresponsible teenage son or daughter who's making really, really foolish decisions over and over again, and they're having an impact on them, a destructive impact on them, and they're impacting the family. It lacks love to simply continue to let that person do that. It's not a loving thing to do to continually let someone sin against you. And the Bible nowhere says for you to do that. The Bible does say 
that if you are suffering for righteousness sake and there is no recourse, then make sure you suffer for righteousness sake, not self-righteousness sake or unrighteousness sake, right? You see a lot of that in scripture, especially in 1 Peter 3. So there is a place where we don't have recourse and a lot of the first century Christians didn't have recourse politically and they suffered for righteousness sake. But we are, we are to forgive radically, but forgiveness does not mean peace at all cost. It does not mean peace at all cost. Number six, forgiving others is costly. Um, it cost this king to forgive this servant 17 years wages. I don't care who you are, Right? That was a radical expression of forgiveness, and it cost that king dearly. It was going to cost this servant significantly to forgive his fellow servant. Two months' wages for that servant was a lot of, a lot of money. It was, it was significant, and it was going to cost him to forgive. And, and we know that it's costly to forgive when we look again at what what God had to do in order to forgive us. It, it was cheap, right? But it was free, I'm sorry, but it wasn't cheap. You see? And, and so forgiveness is costly. Over and over again, you see this in Scripture. The unmerciful servant was owed something, and we must not minimize that he was owed something, and it was going to cost the unmerciful servant to forgive the fellow servant in the same way that it cost the king to forgive as well. But a failure to forgive is costly as well. Uh, look what Jesus says in this parable. Jesus says that if you don't forgive, right, it's going to cost you. And at the end of the parable, there's this stinger at verse 35. This is how my heavenly father will treat you each unless you forgive your brother from your heart. What is Jesus saying? If you are not someone who practices forgiveness, not perfectly, but if you're not growing and you're practicing a forgiveness, that is an indication of the condition of your soul. An unforgiving heart is an unforgiven heart. That's what Jesus is saying. By your fruit, you shall know them. If you're not a forgiving person and you're not growing in the practice of forgiveness with other people, it may be an indication that you haven't yet experienced the forgiving mercies and grace of Jesus Christ himself yourself. You see, that's what's going on here. But I, I want to be clear, and, and I don't want to be Pollyannish here, forgiving another person is never easy. I don't care how small the infraction is. It is not easy. And don't, don't let me stand before you here and act as if it is. It is a fight. It's spiritual warfare to practice forgiveness, and it will cost you. It will cost you dearly, but if you don't, it will cost you even more. And Jesus says it might even be the price of your eternal state. That's how serious this is. Um, look at three more points. Forgiveness, this is, this is important. Forgiveness is first vertical and then horizontal. Forgiveness is first vertical and then horizontal. There are two axes to forgiveness. There's a vertical and a horizontal. We, we typically talk about forgiveness 
Um, and sometimes we don't distinguish between the vertical and the horizontal. And let me show you where we get that. In Mark eleven twenty five. you don't have to turn there, but there's this person standing at the altar worshiping. And the passage says, if you are standing at the altar and worshiping and you remember that you have something against someone, someone who sinned against you, Mark eleven twenty five says, you are to forgive them immediately. Okay, then you go over to Luke 17, verse 3, and it seems to indicate something very different. It says, forgive your brother, and then it puts in this condition, if he repents. So it feels like you have a contradiction, right? Mark 11, okay, I'm I'm supposed to forgive immediately. Luke 17, forgive if he repents. Well, which is it? Or have we stumbled upon a contradiction in Scripture? Which is it? It's both. These two passages are getting at the two axes of forgiveness. Mark eleven twenty five is getting at the vertical axis. This attitude, I am to always practice an attitude of forgiveness. I am to not make you pay. I am to absorb the cost. And I am hopeful that if you repent and you accept and admit that you've sinned against me, if indeed you have, we can be reconciled. See? And it is possible, listen, it is possible for you to genuinely forgive someone from the heart and never experience reconciliation in the relationship. And some people say, well, if you haven't reconciled with that person, you truly haven't forgiven them. Be careful. Be careful. It is, it is quite possible, for instance, for someone, let's take a, a, a classic example that I'm sure is being raised in your minds right now, someone who's been abused, Right? Is it possible for them to forgive vertically and maybe it goes years and years, maybe it never happens, but this person is never reconciled with their abuser? Yes, that is possible. And that person can genuinely have forgiven the abuser, but the reconciliation has never taken place or it takes years before it ever takes place. You see how important it is? to distinguish between the vertical and the horizontal. Let me tell you this. If the vertical isn't there, the horizontal will never happen. If the vertical is there, if there's an attitude of forgiveness, the horizontal now becomes a possibility. But it is dependent and contingent and conditional upon the person who's committed the sin against you to say, I've sinned. You can't forgive someone and be reconciled if they're saying, I didn't do anything. I didn't do anything wrong, right? You can't transact for, uh, forgiveness and be reconciled horizontally at that level. That person has to say, yes, I've sinned. Now, a- another thing I think is important is you want to make sure that what the person did is sinful. You know, there have been situations where in my marriage, um, my wife has said something. And I have interpreted in a certain way. And I have assumed that what she said and what her motives were behind what she said was sinful. And so I go to her and I say, you know, when you said that, I felt like this was going on and here's how I interpret it. And we've talked about it and I found out, oh, wait a minute, that's not what she meant at all. And so that's why this going to one another is so important. Moving towards one another, clarifying, did this person really sin? Did they really do what they did? Did they really say what they said? Was it really driven by the motives that I'm assuming that 
drove this statement or this action. That's why it's important to go back and forth. And there have been occasions where in my marriage, my wife said, no, 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 that's not what I meant. I said, oh, 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 I see, I misunderstood. No, you're right, you didn't sin against me. Now, there have been occasions where, you know, flip the tables. She's come to me and she said, hey, I thought when you said this, et cetera, et cetera. I said, no, you're right. Thank you for clarifying. And I have to own that. Yes, I did. I had a bad attitude. What I said was sinful. Will you forgive me? But it's important to check to make sure. That's why the Matthew 15 process, 18, 15 and following process. So forgiveness is first vertical and then horizontal. Two more. That was seven. Here's number eight. Forgiveness is not forgetting. Forgiveness is not forgetting. Jeremiah 31, 34. People quote Jeremiah 31, 34, and they use it as a proof text to say that forgiveness is forgetting. God says in Jeremiah 31, 34, I have separated your sins as far as the east is from the west, and I will remember them no more. And everybody lag, you know, lays hold of that remember word. And they say, see, God forgets our sins. So if we've truly forgiven someone, we should forget them as well. Well, the problem with that is it's just a bad theology of God. I mean, remember, God's, you know, he's omniscient. Do you think God, you know, has a memory lapse? God doesn't have amnesia. He doesn't forget your sins. When, when you see the word remember in Scripture, it's not a memory word. It's a covenant promise word. What's happening in Jeremiah 31 and all throughout the Old Testament and into the New, God says this, I will forgive your sins and I will not treat you according to what your sins deserve because I have forgiven them. It, is, it isn't that I have forgotten them. I am making a commitment. I'm making a covenant, a promise. That's what that word remember means. I'm not going to treat you as your sins deserve. And I think this is very important for us as we think about practicing forgiveness. Um, Right now, what I want you to do is a little experiment. I don't want you to think about a pink elephant. Right? I want to do another experiment. Right now, I don't want you to remember the sin that someone committed against you this past week or the past month. Your mind doesn't even function that way. You know, it's not true to how we're built. And and, and see, here's, here's the encouraging thing, is it is quite possible for you to genuinely forgive another person and never, ever, ever forget what they did to you. Now, there, there's, a, there's also the potential for bitterness, right? But, and, and I would say that in most cases, particularly with the, the minor kind of daily infractions that happen in daily life between you and other people, most of the times you begin to forget those things a day or a week or a month later, depending on the seriousness of the infraction. The more significant and serious the sin that's been committed against you, the harder it, it is going to be to do that. But this is where I think, again, there is hope and encouragement, and we need clarity, particularly for people, those of us who have experienced being sinned against deeply. It is very possible for you to forgive someone who sinned grievously against them, to genuinely forgive them, and never, ever, ever forget what they did to you. That is possible, and it is biblical. Forgiveness is not forgetting. I've counseled too many people who have been ravaged by abuse and watch them genuinely from the heart forgive their abuser and that memory of what happened to them linger not only for days and months and years, oftentimes for the rest of their life.
They will never forget what happened to them. Very encouraging, though, that we can forgive. And just because we don't forget what has been done to us, it doesn't mean necessarily that we haven't forgiven. And then the final thing I want to say practically is the way that you ask for and grant forgiveness is is crucial. This is where the rubber meets the road. Um, Let me... Let me give you an example. If I'm, I'm standing here, I don't, I, well, I have a bottle of water, but let's say I have a hot cup of coffee and I'm getting really exercised about what I'm saying and I accidentally hit the cup of coffee and it hits Ryan over here and uh, he gets burned from the coffee, okay? That's called what? An accident. When, when you do something accidentally, what do you say? I'm sorry, right? And then you say, can I help you? What can I do? Do we need to get the you know, the EMS in here to work on the third degree burns, whatever, but I'm sorry, right? Um, That's different than if I'm standing up here and I'm teaching and I'm feeling very, very excited about what I'm teaching and I notice that Ryan is not as excited. In fact, he's dozing off. (laughs) And I get a little irritated and agitated and I toss my hot cup of coffee on him to wake him up, all right? And do I say, oh, I'm sorry, right? No, I've sinned against him. I need to say, I just sinned against you. What I did was wrong. Will you forgive me? And here's, here's typically what we do in our relationships. Um, uh, I'm, I'm from the South and we're really good at this. We do a lot of apologies, but we don't really ask for forgiveness, right? We, we do this. Someone sins against you and you say, they say, they say, I'm sorry. And then what do you immediately say? That's okay. So you have one person that's not admitting that they, they sinned against you, and then you're saying it's okay for them to sin against you, right? What happens if you do that over months and years in a relationship? I know what happens. Eventually, the person is sitting in an office with a pastor or a counselor, and they're saying, my husband has never asked for forgiveness. And I always said it was okay, But at some point, I decided it wasn't okay, and I just got bitter and angry and hateful and hurtful, and that's where I am right now. I've watched it 20 years in marriage, and I'm sitting with a couple, and for the first time in 20 years, I'm coaching a couple through the practice of forgiveness, and the the spouse, for the first time ever, says, what I did to you was wrong. Will you forgive me? And the other spouse is saying for the first time, yes, I forgive you. You see, that's that's in the details. That's the nitty-gritty practice of forgiveness. And I, I will tell you that within the context of family, within the context of friends, brothers and sisters in Christ, within the body of Christ, when we practice that, it is a radical incarnational step of grace that gets infused into the relationship that transforms the relationship. I mean, your relationships begin to really go deep at that point. When you're owning sin and asking for forgiveness, when other people are owning sin and asking for forgiveness and people are granting forgiveness, that, 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 is, a, that is a wonderful uh, incarnation of the gospel of grace. And, and I also want, I want to say this. If someone has sinned against someone, you know, and the person that sinned goes and says, what I did was wrong, will you forgive me? 
And the person on the receiving end of that offense pauses and is struggling. You know what? If you're the person that has committed the sin against that person, you need to give that person space to process. Right? Because sometimes they need to think, they need to wrestle with their own heart. And, and just because they don't immediately forgive you on the spot doesn't mean then that you can say, you're wrong in not forgiving me because I ask you to forgive me. Particularly, again, thinking about, you know, the, the size of the infraction and how serious it is. Um, very important to, to keep these in mind. The way that you ask for and grant forgiveness is crucial. Now, I also want to warn you, too, we can oftentimes say the right words with the wrong motives. If uh, I'm upset with my wife and uh, I've sinned against her, I've said something uh, sarcastic or I've been mean-spirited or I've been standoffish, and um, I know that she knows it, and she's kind of struggling to know how to interact with me, and I know that within about three hours, the football game's coming on, and I want to watch the football game, and I don't want to have a, you know, a, a conscience that's kind of ringing while I watch the football game. I can go through all the right motions and say, Barbara, when I did so-and-so, will you forgive me? She says, yes. I say, great. Now I watch the football game without a noisy conscience. But I really didn't mean it. And that's where we have to be careful. And that, that's tricky, particularly when you're dealing with, with counseling, discipling situations where, where someone hasn't genuinely meant what they said. We can say the right words and oftentimes do it for all the wrong reasons. So just because... We're emphasizing exactly what it sounds like to ask for forgiveness and to grant forgiveness. Just understand that, that we're, we're creative enough as, as sinners to, to do all of these things for all the wrong reasons. Um, all right, why don't we forgive? Let me mention three things here. Why don't we forgive? Here's the first reason. And none of us would ever say this. Number Reason number one, you really don't think you need to be forgiven. Okay, let me show you what that looks like. It, it's um, it's, it's a, a little more tricky than just saying it in that kind of way. Here, here's what happens. When someone sins against you, what's the first thing oftentimes that you're saying in your mind? Here's, I can't believe they did that, right? There's this sense of, What? And then you take it a step further, and this is what you say. I would never do that. <laughs> what are you saying? You're saying, I may be a sinner, but I'm not that big of a sinner. I may need God's grace, but I don't need it as much as that person. What have you done? You're, you've taken yourself out of the category of big sinner, and you've put yourself over here in this category. So if you're not if you're not in need of God's monsoon of grace, right, and, and you're not experiencing and receiving that monsoon of grace, what do you think is going to come out? A little trickle at the spout. But if you're over here saying, no, I'm a big sinner, and what you did to me, I could do to you in a second or anybody else. I'm a big sinner. I need grace. And you're, you're under that monsoon of grace. What's going to happen? It's not just going to be a little trickle coming out of the spigot. It's going to be a flood coming out. And so we take ourselves out of that category. I love John Owen. John Owen said, the seed of every known sin is in my heart. He said that as a believer. 
Did you know that even as a believer, you are, you are capable of doing anything and everything sinful? Just water, water it and nurture it a little bit. Let it grow. We are, we are constantly in need of God's grace. That's, that's one of the first reasons why we don't practice forgiveness. And I think it's a, it's, a, it's a place where we find ourselves. I don't really believe that I'm as big of a sinner as the person that just sinned against me. The second reason that we don't forgive is that we don't think we're forgivable. And this cuts in two different ways. And, uh, you know, the most obvious way is I don't think I'm forgivable, and it really is an issue of pride. God in his supreme court has ruled me forgiven, but I'm in the lower court as the judge over me, and I don't believe I'm forgiven, and I don't accept the ruling of the higher court. Therefore, my pride and my ruling in my lower court over me overrules the higher court's ruling of God and what he has said about me. And that, that is an issue of pride. But I want to nuance a little bit more. It, there also may be issues of shame that someone's struggling with. You know what? I don't feel forgivable because of things I've done or things that have been done to me. I feel dirty. And I never feel cleansed. And I don't feel the cleansing mercies of God. I don't really believe that he's forgiven me. You know, people live there. That is, a, that is one of the many struggles that Christians have. And, and so what does forgiveness look like? Looks like? It means that more and more I, I come under and experience the cleansing mercies of Jesus for me. And I grow in my confidence that yes, I am his child. Yes, I am completely forgiven. And I will then begin to more and more practice forgiveness. But that can cut both ways. The final reason that I want to mention is, is this. Is that you are a believer. You, you, you understand and you know and experience it. You're growing in grace. But on any given day or any given week, the utter amazement and shock of the gospel has just kind of waned. You know, you've been a Christian 20 years. And 20 years ago when you first became a Christian, it was just so, so profound. And, and you sensed and you knew and you celebrated when you got up the next morning. I have been forgiven. I have been cleansed. I am a Christian. I belong to the living God. I can't believe this is true. And then you live the Christian life and you start seeing your life improve. And more and more you think, well, you know, I'm getting on in the Christian life and I'm not as needy as I used to be. And, and I, I seem to be doing okay. And I, I hear this talk about Jesus and forgiveness of sins, and I sing it in the hymns, and I read it in the Bible, and my friends are always talking about it, and yada, 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 yada. You know, it's just kind of lost its, its, its shock value. You know, so it goes from amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me, to ho-hum grace, how okay the sound that came along and helped a pretty decent fellow like myself. And we just kind of change the words a little bit, don't we? Um, there's a, there's a, another hymn that I want to share with you that I think captures this well as we just finish this time. Um, it's a hymn by Charles Wesley, and you may be familiar with it. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? I used to uh, sing that hymn, and I, would, I personally particularly with the traditional uh, hymn, I would just get lost in trying to keep up with the melody, you know. And can it be that I should gain an interest? I'm all over the place. I'm like, forget the words. 
You know, just let me keep up with where the notes are going. Um, I don't know what Charles Wesley was doing when he wrote that, but, but I, not even the words, the punctuation. I wish I had it on slide here. Let me, let me read the, uh, the hymn. And next time you sing this hymn, I want you to take note of the punctuation, particularly in the first stanza. He says this, and can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? That's a sentence. And it isn't ended with a period, right? Because that would be, and can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? It's a question. It ends with a question mark. When you say a, a, a sentence with a question mark, what does your voice do? And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? That's a lot different, isn't it? That's a question. Wesley's saying, really? Then he goes, died he for me who caused his pain? Question mark? Really? Amazing love, exclamation point. Another question mark. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Really? He sees he's getting animated. He's, he's shocked at, at what he's hearing again. It's coming alive to him. And, and the second that we get jaded on this amazing reality of God's grace for us in Christ, as soon as that happens, we're not going to be conduits of his grace and forgiveness to other people. It won't happen. You cannot manufacture that. Only living in interpersonal, covenantal, vertical relationship with God, gratitude for his grace, celebrating it daily, celebrating it weekly, being reminded of it. Yes, going through seasons of ebbs and flows and sufferings and struggles and trials and joys and good times and bad times. All of that's going to happen, all right? We don't live on this one constant emotional plane. We're up and down. We're all over the place. But throughout the trajectory and the seasons of life, we're always being shocked by the good news of grace. If that's happening, then I promise you, you will not be able to stop granting people grace. You can't. And that's what I think Jesus is getting at in this parable. He is, he is instructing us to remind ourselves that we are, here's, here's what the parable is saying. Forgive one another as Christ has forgiven you. Fill your mind and, and converse with God with the reality of his forgiving mercies daily for you. And then let that work itself out in the way that you relate to one another. Um, I didn't say this, and I think this is important because it probably will come up in a question. This is the last thing I want to say. When you forgive someone, there is this notion that you should immediately kind of like, oh man, we're all, we're all buddies again now, right? We're, we're in this together. And I would say oftentimes over minor instances, minor infringements, that, that can happen. But you know what? When, when someone sins against another person, that person can forgive them. But you know what? The relationship may take time to improve and to come back to where it was. Why? Because a trust has been violated. And just because you forgive someone, it doesn't mean that you naively now go back into a relationship of complete trust. In fact, that might be very unwise. So it's just important to distinguish between forgiving someone and the trust component of forgiveness that is part of the process. All right, let me, let me pray and then... Uh, I think, Ryan, are you going to come up and close, and then we'll have a Q&A session or a break. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you that in this world of, of messy relationships and brokenness, um, 
in, in our immediate families, and, and I mean that not, not just in the, the cataclysmic, tragic sense, but just in the daily struggles uh, where we live life. Thank you that you've not only given us wisdom and instruction and empowerment to, to grow in those relationships, but you give us a place to go when, when there's failure, when sins have been committed, when uh, offenses have been experienced. Thank you that, that we, can, we can grow in this art by your grace of practicing forgiveness, of asking forgiveness, owning sin, and of granting forgiveness and, and exemplifying grace. Would you, would you encourage us as husbands and wives, as parents with our children, as siblings, as brothers and sisters in Christ to grow in this art of practicing forgiveness on a daily, weekly basis. May we, may we seek one another out when appropriate. May we err on the side of seeking one another out to own sin, to grant forgiveness. Would, would you help us to do that, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.